Welcome to Flippening, the first and original podcast for full-time, professional, and institutional crypto investors. I'm your host, Clay Collins. Each week, we discuss the cryptocurrency economy, new investment strategies for maximizing returns, and stories from the front lines of financial disruption. Go to Flippening.com to join our newsletter for cryptocurrency investors and find out just why this podcast is called Flippening. Clay Collins is the CEO of Nomics. All opinions expressed by Clay and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Nomics or any other company. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Hunter Horsley, and this is one of the very best episodes of Flippening to date. I'll tell you why in a second, but first some background on Hunter. Hunter is the co-founder and CEO of Bitwise Asset Management, which operates the very first crypto index fund called the Hold 10, which tracks the top 10 crypto assets weighted by inflation-adjusted market cap. The Hold 10 index fund has several hundreds of investors that range from billionaires to professors to large RIA firms. By the way, RIA stands for Registered Investment Advisor. Bitwise Asset Management itself closed a $4 million equity round last December, and investors included Naval Ravikant, Keith Raboy, David Sachs, and people who operated at or invested in Stripe, Coinbase, Wealthfront, Palantir, and many other Silicon Valley unicorns. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Here's why. Far and away, my most popular interviews have been with hedge fund managers. I think it's because it's their job to spend time thinking deeply about the future and what it holds, and then to make bets on this envisioned future. This requires hedge fund managers to be constantly reading, researching, getting on planes to speak with crypto projects, and in some cases, gathering primary source data that's not available anywhere online. I think hedge fund managers are among my most popular guests because recruiting and retaining fund investors requires managers to present compelling articulations of the future they're betting on. And my listeners in particular love hearing diverse and compelling articulations of the future, especially when these articulations are backed by large monetary bets. What's notable about this interview is that Hunter's business model is the antithesis of hedge funds. The indexing approach is about collecting small fees from lots of investors and about passive methodologies winning over active strategies of picking coins. It's a belief that a properly formed index can beat hedge fund performance without costly source code reviews, meeting founders, and creating value hypotheses. Hunter's thoughts and worldviews bring some sobering counterpoints to some of this podcast's most popular interviews, and I believe his level of thinking is up there with the likes of hedge fund managers Chris Berninsky and Ari Paul who I would love to have on this show, by the way. In this episode, we discuss, one, the Holton Index's performance and how that compares to the performance of hedge funds. Two, how Hunter coming from a product and technology background versus an investment background led Hunter to start an index fund. Three, the Holton's fee structure and methodology. Four, whether or not Hunter has a favorite shitcoin. And five, whether or not index funds in the crypto space solve the same problems that they solve in public equities markets. Please enjoy my interview with Hunter Horsley from Bitwise Asset Management. I was at a dinner last week. It was a bunch of people in crypto. Everyone went around the table and talked about their favorite shitcoin, which kind of kind of blew me away. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I was a little disappointed. What's your favorite shitcoin? I don't have a favorite shitcoin. Because they're shitcoins. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot going on in the community and the Lambos and shitcoins are uh, part of it. You know, with Bitwise, we're mostly focused on the large caps and, and our clients and yeah, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Every once in a while, though, a shitcoin will get into the top 10. 
in that case, will you pull out your Thor-style banhammer and just say, like, this shall not pass? Or does your methodology take care of that for the most part? The goal of the whole 10 index is to identify the, the 10 assets on five-year diluted market cap that are being most highly valued by the market. It has rules to help navigate some of the pitfalls, so trade volumes, too much concentration on a single index, price pegging, not enough trade history, there needs to be availability on recognized exchanges. But the role of the rules-based approach is not to impose our own views on, on an asset or what an asset could become. And there can be merit there, but I think that there's also there's a lot of room for misjudging something or overlooking something if that's the approach you're taking. So for this vehicle, that's not a component of the activity. There is an index committee, and so if, if something that was publicly convicted of fraudulent behavior or something particularly perilous for investors, we would intervene. But that hasn't had to happen. And generally, we want to be developing a set of logic rules that inform the the selection. Let's step back for a second. There's so many interesting things we could talk about. We could talk about the general trend of indexing in the arc of investing history. We could talk about the role that that plays in cryptocurrency investing. But maybe let's start at the origins. Can you tell us a little bit about Bitwise Asset Management and what sort of brought you to create what I know to be as the first index fund? Absolutely. So Bitwise got started last year. My partner and I, his name is Hong. His background's in software. He did software security in the military, worked at Google briefly. We're actually arbitrage trading in crypto. A friend of ours who works at a StatArb hedge fund in New York had reached out and said, hey, you guys won't believe this, but there are 20% spreads across crypto exchanges. And I studied finance economics at, at Wharton, and all classes are taught with the assumption of efficient markets. We looked into it out of curiosity, and it's true. For moments in time, there are spreads, even now, that are on the order of double digits, which, you know, if on average, the S&P is returning 7 11%. You can get that return in a moment in time, risk-free through arbitrage. So doing that trading activity, writing software to facilitate doing that, I think was what sort of gave us our excuse to start spending a lot of time thinking about cryptocurrency, reading about different protocols, meeting people in the community, setting up institutional accounts, dealing with the issues of acquiring assets, holding them, securing them, doing bookkeeping, dealing with taxes, etc. And also thinking about some of the potential for the future. All of those things taken together were something that we fell in love with and also felt like uniquely has the opportunity to be one of the most important things happening in the world in the coming decades. We knew from that that we wanted to be part of it and to contribute something to the space. We didn't feel like arbitrage trading. It was fun. It was profitable. A number of people approached us about spinning up a stat arb fund focused on crypto, which wasn't really something in the space at that point. It was a really hard decision, but we felt that it wasn't what we wanted to be doing with our careers. I think both Hong and myself like building something or creating something that other people can use. We like having a client. We like getting feedback. This works for me. This doesn't work for me. And having that relationship. And so that wasn't really present in the arbitrage trading. And I think that's what made that feel like something that we weren't best suited to be doing. But at that point, we had concluded that we did want to be spending our careers in the space. And so... In the process of running that trading operation, we came across the problem that we're, we're now working on with Bitwise, which is that we interacted with many individuals. Actually, the, you know, I think we first encountered what we think of as the problem Bitwise is working on in a conversation with my older brother, 
he was a technology banker for several years, uh, CFO at a, at a technology company, now president at a technology company. He's tech savvy. He's comfortable with investing. And he made a remark to me. He said, Hunter, I'd like to invest in cryptocurrency, but I don't know what to buy and I don't have time to figure it out. And I don't have time to be constantly monitoring and managing this stuff. I was catching up with Hong and I told him this and he said, you know, I'm surprised RJ feels that way. And that sort of kicked off the series of, you know, dozens of, of conversations that gave us conviction that there needed to be an organization focused on abstracting away a lot of these complexities so that anyone can participate as an investor. So this is a question I ask everyone who's been on the podcast so far. If it weren't for Satoshi Nakamoto and the white paper and the birth of Bitcoin and then distributed ledger technologies, do you think you'd be involved in financial services and would you have started an index fund? Probably not, right? I think that Bitcoin is the the foundation of everything that is sort of blossoming now around distributed ledgers and, and, and crypto assets. One of the things that, that I think about a little bit is why is this happening now? There's a certain path dependency of history sometimes. And in contemplating that question, one of the thoughts I have is that the moment in time that, that Bitcoin was introduced to the world, 2009, was in many ways actually a uniquely fertile period for something like cryptocurrencies to be embraced by society. There are two things that I see in that, in that moment in time that really facilitated people being open to something like this. The first is the proliferation of, of social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I think we're all familiar with the term the Arab Spring, but one of the byproducts of social media and the ability for anyone to become a content producer and then to distribute to anyone else is that it's, it's shed light on the behavior of large institutions, of large organizations, and allowed some people who previously weren't able to you know, express what they were seeing to do so more broadly. Having that dynamic be in place when the financial crisis happened, I think in many ways was sort of a combination that really damaged people's trust and the ability of the central banks, of the large private banks that we often think of as being the most trusted organizations, and to perceive the missteps and the perils of those organizations' operations with a level of clarity and specificity that I think was hard prior to social media. I think that in addition to the business models and some of the, the concerns that many people have about Facebook and Google and others and how their data is being monetized sort of compounds to create an environment where I think people are more sympathetic and open to the idea of having you know decentralized systems for transferring value or for accomplishing things. Whereas previously, maybe there was less of a feeling that there, there was any problem with, with a central organization serving a lot of those things. I think that's profound. I've heard certainly the financial crash, the housing market and everything that was happening then, that's often cited, I think, sort of the compounding effect of social media and the distrust of institutions that came with that. Certainly, I think that was a catalyst. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely... The role of social media is substantial, right? I mean, I, I mean, this is why I brought up Arab Spring. That's not trivial. The fact that giving anyone the power to broadcast what they're seeing as a result of, of all the, the platforms that are disposal today has had really significant impacts in other parts of the world. It makes sense that it would affect people everywhere. So I, I think that that's definitely something that has been a, one of the prevailing developments in the, in the past 10 years and plays into the world that cryptocurrency is now stepping into. Let's fast forward a little bit. You know, the Bitcoin white paper comes out, Bitcoin comes out in 2009. 2009, yeah. And then various forks of Bitcoin come out, Ethereum comes out. For a while, we were living in a Bitcoin world. It was 
you know, there was Bitcoin and there was everything else. And then Ethereum came on the scene and I think surprised a lot of people with the growth it's seen. And, and that kind of brings us to the place where we are now, which is a, a truly, you know, multi-token world. In a lot of ways, I think that set the groundwork for an index fund because you can't just bet on two tokens and assume you're going to benefit from most of the growth in the space. What I'd like to hear from you is really the case for index funds. I was talking to someone the other day who was going to start an index fund, but they also run a hedge fund and they couldn't speak freely (laughs) about the benefits of an index fund over traditional hedge funds because they're at odds. (laughs) because they are at odds. So what's the case for index funds over hedge funds? To back up a little bit to the premise you set, I do think that the clear need for holding a portfolio in crypto has been something that's new as of 2017. So as as you pointed out, crypto was by and large a Bitcoin maximalist world for the years between 2009 and just last year. Bitcoin was always 85% or more of the combined market cap of, of all crypto assets. In May of 2017, it dropped to around 55%, and it ended the year around 35%. That's a relatively new state of the world. And what it means, and and I think what really changed, is many people were investing against an abstract thesis, which was that cryptocurrency as a category might produce something meaningful one day, but investors don't necessarily know which asset or what that meaningful thing will be. And previously, if you wanted exposure to cryptocurrency as a category, just investing in Bitcoin seemed feasible because it was the majority of the value in the category. I think as of 2017, everyone increasingly recognizes that holding a portfolio is important. So what are the merits to an index approach over an active approach? I think there are many. Obviously, in equities, uh, index outperforms active management. With regards to crypto specifically, there are a variety of things. First of all, in 2017, the Hold 10, so there's an index of the top 10 by five-year diluted market cap that we run, has other methodology, which we can talk about, returned 2,200%. HFR, which runs an index of active managers, they take performance data from active managers and then combine it to produce an index of, of active manager performance, reported that active managers of crypto funds, of which they're now maybe 100, returned 2,500%, so 300% more before fees. After fees, your money appreciated better in a vehicle like ours. If you invest in 100000 you wound up with 2.1 million in our vehicle and you wound up with 1.9 million in an active vehicle. So just on a performance basis, both of those outperform Bitcoin last year. Bitcoin was up, I think, 1,300%. On a performance basis, I think that there are strong merits to an index, but there are other reasons to approaching it that way. The second important component of rules-based investing is that you do remove a lot of the subjective bias that the active managers are using to generate alpha. And some of them likely will be able to generate alpha and and outperform, but not everyone, and it's hard to know who. Naval Ravikant, who's an investor in our company, runs a a firm called Metastable, which I think is an example of a really great active fund. But there are tons of biases that an active manager has to navigate. They have to navigate their philosophical biases, so they have a model of the world and they have a model of what a cryptocurrency is, and it can be hard to change that model. There's geographical or information bubble biases. So you know, I think a lot of managers are predisposed towards US-based projects or projects that are being built by entrepreneurs who know someone they know and sometimes are a little bit more dismissive of, for example, something like Neo that's based out of a different geography. There's reputational biases. If you've been very public about your stance on an asset, 
you may be slow to adapting your perspective on it. I think a second merit of just aside from you know performance is that it's a, it's a different approach. So I think it can fit alongside active management. I think it has its benefits in those ways. I think in general, holding a diversified portfolio is definitely something that long investors in crypto need to be doing today. There are a variety of reasons for that. Performance is better. So comparing the whole 10 to Bitcoin in December, the index was up. I think Bitcoin was up 39%. The index was up 78%. And then we obviously had this, the drawdown in January. Bitcoin was down around 30% and the index was only down around 18%. The volatility is lower in the index. The other important thing to recognize, because crypto assets are so nascent, there are a lot of tail risks that remain for any of these projects. As an example, a blockchain could be hacked. Some sort of overly cumbersome regulation could come into place. There's key man risk if an important leader of a project is murdered or has a really unfortunate development like that. That can cut short the life of what is otherwise potentially a really good technology or a really good and promising network. I think a microcosm of this would have been what happened with Tezos last year, which is, I think, a project that everyone has had very high expectations for and and had a tail event like this take place. They're an incredible team, an incredible group of people, had incredible backers, but there's a lot lot of risks to operating in the space. And, And so that's another thing that you can mitigate by holding a basket. Absolutely. So I actually... I looked up another article about average crypto hedge fund returns in 2017, and it was 1,100. So Bitcoin, by an order of magnitude, outperformed the average crypto hedge fund. So you got to think about you know people paying 20% for what are essentially beta gains <laughs> on this space when an index, a simple index fund, the hedge fund was up 1,100% versus Bitcoin, which is up 1,400%. Our index was up in excess of 2,000. Yeah. When you consider like kind of the historical context in the arc of history and and sort of the increase that we're seeing in public equities markets of indexing and index funds, and then you think about you know what indexing looks like for crypto assets, do you think that an index fund in the crypto space essentially solves the same problem that it solves in public equities markets, or do you think it solves a different problem? I do think it's a similar playing a similar role in, in selection and reducing some of these biases as, as well as bringing down the, the cost of selection and managing a basket. But I think in, in 2017, hedge funds were introduced, futures were introduced, we launched the first cryptocurrency index fund, and there's increased interest from people in traditional capital markets. That being said, I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that the way crypto as an asset class will develop will be the same way that other asset classes have developed. I think a, a component of this, for example, is the ability to bring a public fund to market. So it's been, as you're probably aware, a long dialogue with the regulators and in particular the SEC to explore the possibility of an exchange-traded product. You know, it's not clear. I think maybe it's two or three weeks ago now, the, the SEC came back with 30 or so really good questions that need to get answered before they would feel comfortable with a, a public exchange trading 40 Act fund. And it's not clear that that will happen this year. If it takes long enough to bring a public fund to market, it might be the case that one of the differences in the way the category will unfold is that more people end up just holding direct exposure and you know are participating through private vehicles like ours or buying out you know baskets of assets themselves and so you know I, I think that there's certainly in what we're doing there's very strong parallels to index funds in, in other equity markets or fixed income markets but I think that the the evolution of the market itself has not yet fully played out and so that will definitely impact you know the landscape of products like ours and the options people have for getting exposure 
when you think about you know indexing in the space and your future roadmap, there's a lot of different paths you could go down. You know, one route could be a token model, and I know that there are kind of smaller token projects that attempt to do some indexing. Another route could be an index ETF. There's a lot of different things this could turn into. How do you see indexing playing out over time in this space? And how do you think of your product roadmap, given your thoughts about where things are going? Yeah, I think that there's two things that come to mind here. One is we think about how categories evolve within crypto. So when we talk about crypto, we often, by default, are talking about the assets that are targeting monetary use cases. So payments, remittance, store value, etc. But there are other pockets of ways that public distributed ledgers are being you know, applied that are a bit different and might result in the desire to sort of split or have more focus in the set of things that you're getting exposure to. There's not a good taxonomy or, or categorization today. We're actually going to announce a senior hire that's joined the firm who has experience in this from um, traditional asset classes. But it's something that, that we're thinking a lot about as it pertains to the, the category and indexing exposure is what are the different pockets of, of assets that have a common but distinct strains. I think that you're also getting at a little bit, what are the right vehicles? Right now, most of the, the fund vehicles are private vehicles. We talked about exchange-traded products. You talked about tokenizing a fund. I think that those are all things that are on the table. A lot of the question with crypto is timing. As it pertains to public vehicles, a lot of that has to do with the dialogue with regulators. For some of the really compelling and interesting possibilities around creating protocols specifically for holding baskets or writing a smart contract to facilitate that or tokenizing securities, one of the things that I'm frequently thinking about is, is the time right? And the lens that, that we use to help us clarify if we think the time is right is what we hear from clients. And I think that a lot took place in, in 2017. Obviously, the market appreciated incredibly. A lot of people created accounts on Coinbase and blockchain. but most of the world and most people are, are not ready yet to be involved with that level of complexity with a smart contract or sending private keys somewhere. And so I think our view right now is that uh, bridge still needs to be built. Most people still need people to come to them and to leverage the mental models and points of reference that they have. And so, yeah, I think with regards to some of the amazing possibilities around doing things in a more crypto native way, they're fascinating. And, and I think that they will be the approach in time. The question is just, you know, for us, timing. So when you think about, you know, where your sweet spot is, is it, you know, providing private investment vehicles for accredited investors? Is your mission to get safe exposure for as many people as possible with the lowest fees? Like, how do you kind of carve up the marketplace and where do you fit? I think talking about the, the clients that we serve is an interesting framing, but just taking a slight step back from that, the way we think about ourselves is crypto is bringing together two worlds right now. It's bringing together people from the software world who are excited because this is one of the most interesting and potentially important things happening in internet and in software. It's also bringing in people from the finance world who are excited because this is one of the most interesting things happening in markets and the development of a new asset class. The way that we see ourselves is that we want Bitwise to be, at its core, a software organization who can stay on top of these details and be the expert in creating rules-based abstractions for investors and be a partner to them over a long period of time. The structures that we set up are low-cost, high-volume and have necessitated taking venture investment. We are trying to pull in the best people or the best minds in crypto, technology, fintech 
our investors, which I, th- I think you know, you're familiar with, have been involved in building or invested in PayPal, Square, Stripe, Coinbase, Wealthfront, Palantir, many others. Naval is an investor, Keith Boy, David Sachs. The way I think about what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a meaningful institution that is bringing a software expertise and a software perspective to navigating this landscape. In terms of specifically the investors that we interact with, the reality so far has been that it's been across the board. Our fund now has several hundreds of investors in it. That includes billionaires, it includes professors, it includes doctors, it includes large RAAs. We're talking with some very large family offices, institutional investors. We don't have a strong bias there. The reason that I wanted to start by describing a little bit about how we, we see ourselves and our identity as an organization is that we, you know, we're interested in getting to think about the details of crypto assets, the evolving landscape, categorizations, the technologies on behalf of investors. And as long as we can do a good job for them, and, and granted, you know, not all vehicles are suited to all investors, we don't have a strong bias along those lines. Crypto assets have created an opening for folks who wanted to become venture capitalists, but perhaps didn't have the pedigree or the background or experience to break into that market. But now that this new asset class exists, you know, they've got a way in and they're doing a lot of crypto hedge funds are doing things that traditionally VCs have done, like talking to teams, reviewing code, you know, getting on airplanes and making rational assessments about the long term value of these tokens. But often the markets don't care. I mean, we have, I'm not even going to name specific projects, but we have projects that have made it into the top 10, the top 15 that have no business being there. And the market is highly irrational. A lot of this is based on sentiment and momentum. What are your thoughts on value-based investing versus perhaps, you know, momentum or sentiment-based investing in this space? And do you think it's even wise at all to make rational assessments of these projects when placing an investment? My view is that it's very hard to anticipate where the prices of assets will move in the short term. And I think any honest active manager or person participating in the space would recognize that. I think it's worthwhile that people try to understand and predict, but I think it's very hard. And so I think the best opportunity for an investor is thinking about long-term exposure. And if you have a thesis around something appreciating in the longer term, I think that a challenge that we all face as investors in crypto as an asset class who are thinking about what we want exposure to in the long term is two dynamics of the the category today. I wrote a piece for Coindesk's year in review called 2017, the year of cryptocurrency became a new asset class that has some discussion of these things. The two things that I think make it challenging to decide what to invest in are first, there is no framework for fundamental analysis that the community has agreed upon. So we can't take discounted cash flows. There's some promising ideas around, you've probably heard people talk about the quantitative theory of money or this this equation, M divided by QV equals P. There's some ideas around staking as being a way of pulling cash flow analysis into crypto assets. But there is no framework that has been battle tested and that we know will be a true predictor. And then certainly, as, as you mentioned, many investors are taking a more venture style approach to thinking about things, which I think has a lot of merit. Thinking about the team, thinking about the market, thinking about their advantages. The second thing that makes it complicated is the reflexive nature of crypto assets, which is a little bit different from other things. So let's take Ethereum as an example. Ethereum, as now a very large cap asset, has advantages over something else trying to do the same thing. 
The advantages are it's more attractive to investors. It has more liquidity. It's more valuable as a network. There's more hash power. There's more incentives for, for miners to come on. There's more people who hold the asset, are willing to exchange the asset. There's more adoption by the ecosystem. But also, many of the surrounding constituents, in Ethereum's case, the Ethereum Foundation, Consensus, and certainly developers, become strongly incentivized and are well-resourced to make Ethereum work. So if something needs to change, if there is a narrative problem, you know, I think Consensus has a business consulting division, a lobbying division, a government consulting division. They train Solidity developers. They fund applications on top of Ethereum. And certainly the Ethereum Foundation does tons of research, advocacy, participates in the community. And they both have billions of dollars at their disposal to do those things. Hundreds of centrally coordinated employees working on those things. Those are huge advantages that Ethereum now has just as a function of being one of the very highly valued assets. As it becomes more valuable, its likelihood of being valuable in a way increases, and that's what makes it sort of reflexive. The fact that we don't yet have well-tested frameworks for valuing assets, and you know, many people from the finance world are thinking about cash flow models or other you know, DCFs, comps, other models from traditional asset classes, and people from the venture world are thinking about teams and the technology and the, the market opportunity and sort of both bringing their typical frameworks. And we'll see what works out as being the best way to think about things. I think not knowing what the right frameworks will be is, is one challenging thing, certainly. And then I think the second thing is that there's this reflexive nature to projects. If something becomes so well-resourced and has a really strong network in terms of hashing power or the ecosystem that's accepting it, even if maybe it wasn't the best project or it wasn't good on some dimension, that in a way really increases its odds of succeeding. And that's part of why we think that the whole 10 index is such a valuable basket to hold and a way of getting broad exposure because those assets have huge advantages over other things. Let's just talk through the fundamentals of the product offering. So what are the fees? What's the lockup terms? Are there gates? What's the minimum investment? Are there early withdrawal penalties? If you could just walk us through sort of the high-level parameters of the offering, I'd be grateful. Yeah, absolutely. The Bitwise Whole 10 Fund, it's tracking this, this rules-based strategy, the Whole 10 Index. I've sort of mentioned a few of these things before, but is looking at five-year diluted market cap. Market cap was not a concept designed for crypto assets. I think it's one of the really helpful bridges of understanding that has been built. But market cap sort of assumes a fixed supply. In equities, supply changes in a step function with a split buyback new issuance. But for crypto assets, sort of definitionally, it changes continuously and the function is different for different assets. And even for assets that have the same function, like take Zcash and, and Bitcoin, for example, depending on their age, they're in a different moment of supply increase. So we take the five-year diluted market cap. We look at then a number of eligibility criteria to navigate some of the pitfalls of assets. So if there's sufficient trade volume, if there's over-concentration on a specific exchange. So for example, Cardano has an alarming amount of its trade volume coming from one exchange. I'd have to look at the numbers, but I think it's something on the order of 70%. We look at if there's price pegging, we look at if it's available on recognized exchanges. So that's the, the index. We can talk more about that. The index informs the fund. The fund has no performance fee. It has a management fee. The management fee is 2.5%. In general, we're trying to set ourselves up to be a low-cost, high-volume firm and, and vehicles to that end. The assets are stored in 100% cold storage. Security is obviously one of the most important things about what we do, what we offer for clients. And so we evaluate each individual asset and then put them in cold storage. In terms of liquidity, liquidity is available quarterly. It's very different from a, an exchange-traded fund in that way. 
there's a soft walk up for the first year. In general, we think about the fund as being best for people who have a multiple year time horizon on their investment thesis. The soft walk up reflects that. So th- what the soft walk up means is that there's a 3% withdrawal fee in the first year. After the first year, there's no withdrawal fee. There's no fee for investing in the fund. Liquidity is available quarterly. In addition to tracking the index, buying the assets, we, we buy the assets across a number of liquidity providers. So the lit exchanges, GDAX, Poloniex, Bitfinex, Bitrex, Kraken, et cetera. We also trade on the OTC trading desks. So in the private order books, Circle, Cumberland, Genesis, there are a number of other large firms that have reached out to us now who are thinking about getting into the space. So we have software that allows us to chop up orders and then execute at the best prices across these different liquidity pools. Assets are moved into cold storage. And then the, the other thing that we do for investors is when there are hard forks, airdrops, Ethereum rolls out proof of stake in the Casper update, we'll evaluate the ability to stake assets to generate extra return. If the Lightning Network becomes a production-ready technology in, in 2018, we'll evaluate the ability to be a supernode to generate extra return on the Bitcoin. So we think about what we can do with the underlying to take advantage of events like this or developments in the protocols to generate extra return on the assets in, in the vehicle. I think the last thing which I had to mention is that the fund rebalances monthly to keep current with what's in the top 10. So the minimum investment is, is 25000 which I recognize is, is fairly substantial. That might increase over time. We'll have to see. Do you find that the customers that put in the least amount make the most noise for your customer support reps? No, 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 no. <laughs> I would actually also say that everyone on our team loves interacting with clients. And, and I think that's one of the pleasures of what we get to do. It's more a matter of focus for us as an organization and for this specific vehicle. I was going to ask about sort of like backtesting, you know, 10 versus 15 versus 20. Why 10? Why monthly rebalancing versus every two weeks, every one week? But we evaluated holding five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way up to 20. Holding more is valuable because it allows us to capture more of the upside. Obviously, as you go outside of the top 10, trade volumes get much lower. And so that's a significant consideration you have to have. But holding more, like I said, allows us to capture the appreciation for longer in the basket and it minimizes turnover. So, for example, I think the, the smallest position in the index fund right now is a 1% holding of Monero. If there's a change, if Monero drops out of the top 10 and something else comes in, there's only turnover on the gains on that 1%, right? Versus if you don't rebalance frequently enough or if you only hold four assets and when something changes, you have to liquidate 20% of the fund or 10% of the fund, that's a lot less favorable, both because you didn't capture the performance, but also you have a, a much larger trading event. Hunter, you've been very generous. I appreciate you making time for me. Really appreciate that. Thanks. That's it for this week. To sign up for our free crypto investing newsletter, listen to other episodes, or get the show notes from this episode, please visit flippening.com. I also invite you to check out the startup that funds this podcast, Nomics, spelled N-O-M-I-C-S, at nomics.com. Finally, if you got value from the show, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is to leave a five-star review with some comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next week.